You're listening to our weekly podcast, Getting in the Word with Stuart Guthrie. Stuart is the teaching pastor of Family Bible Fellowship of Ridgeville in Early Branch, South Carolina. We hope to grow together with you, seeking real knowledge from the truth, the Word of God. Here's Stuart. We're continuing our study this morning in the book of John. We have last week approached John chapter 18, and we talked about the sovereign siege of Jesus Christ. Meaning that Christ was seized by His own self-will and ultimately the sovereign plan of God um, on His life. Now, while last week we didn't see the actual arrest of Jesus in last week's sermon, it was the preliminary events of His betrayal in the process for which would ultimately lead to His arrest. And that would unfold. In today's message, we will see the arrest take place, um, the, the progress of the decline of Peter as he denies Jesus continually, and we will be, begin to see the process as Jesus is only literally hours from the cross. Now, Contextually speaking, it seems like we have several chapters, but in time frame wise, chronologically, Jesus is going to be crucified for the sins of the world in just a few moments. Now, when we look at John's account, he doesn't give great details. And I have to ask the question why doesn't he give great details? But nevertheless, he doesn't give great details of these events as we approach his trials. Um, his account is much different in some ways, in some respects, as far as the details go in relation to Matthew and Mark and Luke, the synoptic Gospels. But nevertheless, the overarching ideas are, are, are certainly made known by John for a specific purpose. Matthew's purpose was to reveal Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. The theme of Mark or the purpose of Mark is that Jesus be deemed as the suffering servant. Luke's purpose and method was to reveal Jesus as the Savior of the world who seeks the lost. And John reveals that Jesus is Indeed, deity, God in flesh, who became man. John wants his readers to exercise faith toward Christ. And I think it's at the heartbeat of John to specifically emphasize what he does for the very purpose of that. So here in this portion of Scripture, John doesn't give extravagant details, but emphasizes, I believe, as a contrast between faithfulness and unfaithfulness, between, you could say, courage and, and cowardliness, with the ultimate emphasis of Peter's rejection of Christ in the face of, may we say, possible persecution. Now, we can sit back in our own little world, in our own little lives, and suggest to ourselves, how in the world could Peter do such a thing? When in reality, we can find ourselves doing the same thing all the time. 
Because in order to understand what's happening in John 18 as Peter rejects Christ, not once, not twice, but ultimately three times, we have to ask ourselves as we approach the text, how is it that we as well in many ways, like Peter, can find ourselves rejecting Christ? Now you may sit there this morning and say, I'm a follower of Christ, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. I've never rejected Christ. But is it not the same thing in some way, shape, fashion, or form when we live out in knowing sin? When we obey the fleshly desires rather than being walking in the Spirit, that we find ourselves just like Peter, rejecting Christ and His Word. So today's message is really about rejecting Jesus. But I also believe it's about forgiveness. It's about the ability to acknowledge sin. We all have sin. The question is, do we acknowledge that sin? Some today may come having completely rejected Christ eternally, denying Him as who He claims to be God in flesh. That's certainly at the heart of John, as he wishes that none would reject, but that all would believe and come to repentance and ultimately be saved. But also in our daily lives, isn't it true that sometimes we find ourselves rejecting Christ by the way we live our lives? And I know we can be spiritual and we can think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, but let's just be real for a minute. If there's one thing we have in common, it is our ability to reject God's truth. To accomplish that which maybe we desire to get and to gain for our own lives, our own circumstances. We are very capable of justifying just about everything, aren't we? We can reject Christ like Peter does. Walking out in the flesh in opposition to that which we know to be true. And therefore, we like Peter have a daily opportunity to reject Christ. I mean, it's Sunday morning. We've been at it all week. We have just a, a few hours that we dedicate to the Lord and many times we are like the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. We, we can't even keep our eyes open for an hour while we hear the, the Word of God. And yet we think we aren't capable of rejecting Christ. We can't even stay awake. Now that's easy for me to say because I'm standing up here preaching. It'll be kind of hard for me to fall asleep. But every six weeks I'm off and I'm listening to someone else preach and I know the tension and the struggle when the room heats up and the temperature rising and the Word is being preached and I get into that days where I just want to crash. Why is it? Because we are all very capable. And we have thought too highly of ourselves than we have ought to have thought. We are very capable of denying Christ. So this morning, I want us to consider together 
as we watch this establishment of an ongoing progressive denial of Christ. That it is an opportunity for us to, if we're not careful, be like Peter, as we are likely to be tempted to reject the truth of God's Word, Christ. So turn with me, if you, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, John chapter 18, and I'll begin reading in verse 12. So the Roman cohorts and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound Him and led Him to Annas first, for He was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was better for one man to die on behalf of the people. So Simon Peter was following Jesus, so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest, but Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, are, are you not also one of this man's disciples? He said, I am not. Now the slave and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold and there was, they were warming themselves, and Peter was also with them standing and warming themselves. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I've also always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jewish people come together and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who heard what I spoke to them. Behold, they know what I said. And when he had said this, one of the officers standing near my gave Jesus a slap, saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, bear witness of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? So Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whom ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied it again, and immediately the rooster crowed. Three things that I want us to gather from the portion of Scripture this morning that I believe will help us in our understanding to learn from the mistakes in which Peter has made. Number one, I want you to see the foundation of failure. Secondly, the confrontation of corruption. And thirdly, the culmination of denial. Let's first look at the foundation of failure. John begins this portion of our passage with the logistics, so to speak, of the arrest of Christ and ultimately His preliminary hearing or trial that was to take place. 
So we're told here, so the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. John reminds us that the same cohort of soldiers and commanders and the officers of Jews accomplished what Judas had set out to do, and that was for them to be led to Jesus and for the arrest to take place. And so what we see here is the Son of God bound by man. Now he would be taken to trial. Here we begin to see the stages for which they begin that process. Interesting that John notes that Christ is first led to Annas. He is not the current high priest who had been removed, so to speak, from office, but seems to still have clout with the people. We all know somebody like that that is no longer in the leadership role, but still has the, 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 the interest of the people. You see that in churches all the time when a pastor resigns and a new pastor comes in. A lot of times they like to get rid of the old pastor in a completely different church because the people have been so connected with that pastor over the years that he doesn't have the authority that the new pastor has. And therefore, in order to get the authority to the one who is now in the pulpit in charge, they have to remove him. And so what's happening here is Jesus is first taken to Annas, who isn't the high priest, but, but used to be the high priest, and in light of the people, should still be the high priest. But out of respect and commitment, this position was deemed a lifetime position to be hold, to be held. John clarifies to us that he isn't the current high priest, but rather the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who is standing in the current role of high priest that year. Seems that, again, out of fear for both the Romans and the Jewish people who have deemed Jesus the Messiah, out of fear that there would be great rebellion, they allow this trial to take place at night. Now we know that because, well, you usually use lanterns and lights at night, not during the day. And they have just transitioned from the Garden of Gethsemane to Annas, the old high priest, in this preliminary hearing. These trials really take place in three parts. We don't see but two of them now, Next week will be the third part. But here in the first part, Jesus is taken to Ananias, the old high priest. Secondly, we'll see in verse 24 that when he is done, he will then take him to Caiaphas as the second part. And then ultimately, after that, the next morning, when they arise, they will then take him to Pilate. Nonetheless, at this point, Jesus has been led to Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas in verse 14, John continues, Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be better for one man to die on behalf of the other people. Now this is a repeat of what we've already learned in John chapter 11. 
And it reads, in, starting in verse 47, and this is what John is referring to when it says, Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the Sanhedrin together and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is doing many signs. And if we let him go on like this, all will believe in him. And the Romans will come. They will take both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, the same guy we're talking about here in chapter 18, who was the high priest that year, still is, and when Jesus is led into these trials, says to him, you know nothing at all. Nor do you take into account that it is better for you that one man should die for the people than that the whole nation should not perish, should perish. John Calvin commented in this way, when he says it was a short discussion. For Caiaphas did not allow them to hesitate long. He holds out that there is but one way of purchasing safety, and that is to slay the innocent man. John, I believe, includes this note to bring about this very idea that what is about to unfold is the very plan and purpose of God. Now Caiaphas didn't say what he said on his own initiative, but rather he said what God wanted him to say in that moment. And John is drawing us back to that point in time in which he's now distinguishing the unfolding event for which Caiaphas has referred. It was a predetermined intention by the religious leaders to kill Christ But God's in control. And it would only happen at God's perfect timing. What we see is God, the sovereign king, has his own agenda. And so in John 11, continuing in verse 51, now he did not say this on his own initiative, what Caiaphas was talking about. But being the high priest that year, he what? He prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not only for the nation, but in order that He might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So yes, Jesus is on trial. And we are reminded that yes, He will die. He will die for the sins of mankind that you and I might have life. And while Caiaphas had no idea what he was saying, it was a, a, a prophecy to speak that God would accomplish His purpose through these high priests. Why? Because the king's heart is like a channel. We could say here, the high priest is, is like a channel of water in the hands of God and he turns it wherever he wishes. He accomplishes whatever He purposes. And He will use the high priest in order to do the very thing He wishes to accomplish. He will finish the task that is preordained. And you and I this morning, we can say, Amen, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Because unless these events unfold, you and I are to be most pitied. The foundation, the first foundation of failure we see 
is that these men think they are doing something in which will help them, but in the end will be their demise. God's will must be accomplished. The sealing of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary has become the very thing that has convicted them to death eternally. Now we could probably just stop here for a minute, make application that many times we try to manipulate our own way into accomplishing what we hope an outcome will be. And that, my friends, is a foundation for failure. Because we should ultimately submit to the sovereign will of God in our lives and trust Him to live our lives in a way that would ultimately gratify and honor the Lord Jesus Christ. And let the outcome be what it may. Because hear me out, the will of God never contradicts the Word of God. The will of God never contradicts the Word of God. And therefore, if you're trying to accomplish something in your life that doesn't match up to the Word of God, just know it ain't the will of God. Now we live in a world and in a, in a culture that has confused that which God calls good with that which God calls evil. And there is a mass confusion. But for us, we have the book. We have the rules by which we as Christians have standards. I know we don't like talking about standards in our day. But know this, my friends. God's ways are always the right way whether it be marriage, whether it be in your families, whether it be in your businesses, God will never, ever call you to do something that will contradict His Word. It is not the will of God. And in the end, God's will ultimately will be accomplished anyways. No matter how much we try to manipulate it, no matter how hard we try to bend the rules to fit our desires, no matter how we try to get what we want, we should be like Christ in the garden and say, not my will be done, but yours, Father. So we see the beginning of the foundations of failure among the religious leaders who think they are accomplishing that which is beneficial for them, when in reality they are accomplishing the very plan of a sovereign God. The odds are against you accomplishing what you think to be right when God is in absolute control. Now, He may allow you to do that which you wish, but in the end, you will wish you were not where you were wanting to be. Because it will be displeasing to the Lord. They arrest Jesus. They, they, they bind Him up. They tie His hands behind His back. The Son of God. Become flesh. And they go to Him with weapons and, and they bind Him up and haul Him off before a faulty trial. And here in the text, the narrative picks back up on Peter. It's kind of a two-fold act in which we are watching play out. We just witnessed Act 1 is 
so to speak, is the first portion of his trial in which Jesus is arrested and brought to Annas. But here in the narrative, we're brought back to what's happening with Peter in the background. And so John continues in verse 15. Simon Peter was following Jesus. And so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest, but Peter was standing outside. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Here we are giving some information that's very vague into the relation of the person within this narrative. We know it's Peter. But John specifies this other person as another disciple. We've been given information previously that Peter, although he initially had fled with the rest of the disciples, there when Jesus was arrested in the garden, has had a change of mind, a courage, so to speak, in which he makes his way back into following the cohort to the high priest court. And after Judas betrays, after Peter had cut off the ear of Malchus, we are reminded that they were getting ready to depart in the text in Mark says in Mark 14, 50, they, they, they all left him and fled. Now that's, that's important to, to understand. They're scared. They're, they're frightened. So it seems very clear that all of the disciples had left him and fled. And then when we come to Matthew chapter 26, verse 56, it says, but all this has taken place in order the scriptures of the, uh, of the prophets would be fulfilled. Then all of the disciples left and fled. But now in both Mark and in Matthew, we are told that at some point Jesus followed from a distance. He's not trying to get close. Why? Because there is a risk of him as well being arrested. You say, well, how do we know that? Well, it seems like anybody at this moment could be arrested because when we look at, at Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 50, when it says, and they all left him and fled, Mark 14, 51 says, and a young man was following him. We don't know who this is either. But the text says he's wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body. And they, what? They seized him. There is a concern that, that anybody close to Jesus in this moment could be captured. But he pulled free from the linen sheet and we have a streaker through the garden. It's kind of an awkward insert, isn't it? But here in 15, Simon Peter was following Jesus and so was another disciple. Here's the bottom line. I'm going to tell you what's true. We do not know who the disciple is. Are you okay with that? I am. 
Because he doesn't tell us. Now, I will say this. The historical view is that this disciple is John the Apostle. And there's a lot of possibilities for which this could be the case. But know this, they're all speculation. There is also a possibility that it could be Judas. But that is also speculative. Whoever it is, and I'll tell you who I think it is in a minute. Whoever it is, the text says in verse 15, Simon Peter was following Jesus So was another disciple. Now that disciple, the unknown guy, was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. Now that Greek word there, known, is not just uh, he knew of him, but there was more of an intimate relationship. Peter's access into into the high priest's courtyard, listen, was ultimately a result of his buddy's knowledge of the high priest, as we'll see in a minute. Now, right off, I have a hard time believing that John the Apostle had some kind of prior relationship with the high priest. But I also understand that I'm up against a history of a position that is a historical view. But if you'll entertain me for a moment. Certainly I could be wrong. John was indeed a fisherman. And we know that he came from a wealthy family. Mark 1.20 suggests that his father was a wealthy man who had possessed and hired servants. Others have suggested that because they were of a wealthy family and and well known as the fishing industry, that they had personally delivered fish to the high priestly court. And therefore, he had built a relationship over the years by his delivering of the fish. But that comes from the Apocrypha. And I don't feel adequate that I can suggest to you that the Apocrypha is the Word of God. And so nevertheless... Some have suggested that John's mother was a part of the high priestly family. All of these possibilities are truly possibilities. But to me, what seems most probable is that it is Judas. Now, I think it's important for me to tell you again that I don't know who it is, but it is possible that it is Judas. This is a well-known view. But at the end of the day, I don't think it really matters. But it is interesting to me that this disciple walks right in to the court of the high priest. Unopposed. I mean, Judas has indeed been working behind the scenes with the high priest. He's basically on payroll as he sells out Jesus. He's been giving insight as to what and the whereabouts of where Jesus is. I mean, it was indeed Judas that betrayed Jesus and came with a cohort of Roman soldiers and officers. There was no denying of Judas that he was and had been a disciple of Christ to these religious leaders. They knew who he was. 
And in all of the other Gospels, when Judas approaches them in the garden to deceive and to betray Christ, all of them call Him one of the twelve. But Peter is obviously not known by the high priest. Thus, verse 16 fills in in the details. Peter was standing outside the door. Why? Because you just don't get into the court of the high priest unless you know somebody. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out, spoke to the doorkeeper, and brought Peter in. Now we know that John has historically throughout his gospel been unwilling to speak of himself outright. He, in a way, privately discloses himself by secret code. Using terms, uh, the other disciple whom Jesus loved. If, if this would have said the other disciple whom Jesus loved, none of us would be asking this question. Who is this man? And in chapter 20 of John, whom many commentators suggest in verses 2 to 4, that this same idea of the other disciple is, is a connection to who this person is, and it's John. But he rarely comes out and says who he is and speaks of himself typically in third person. So it is very possible it's John. Regardless of who it is, he was needed in order to get Peter into the courtyard. If it is indeed Judas, I think there is a contrast, comparison being made between two people who have rejected God. Both wept, but only one would repent. He goes out, he says, yo, this is my homeboy, let him in. And Peter goes in. But notice Peter just doesn't go in and mingle. Why? Because he is in a place he does not belong. These are enemies of Jesus. He gets him in, arrives into the courtyard and tries to be as inconspicuous as as. He possibly can't. If he sits off over here by himself, he really looks awkward. And so what does he do? He tries to make himself blend in. And as he's coming in, he is asked a question that I believe is the foundation of his failure. I mean, we know he approached this situation from a distance. He's obviously frightened, scared, if it's John, why isn't he the same way? I mean, he already fled once from the garden out of fear. Now all of a sudden, it's John. He walks right into the courtyard, no problem. So Peter, upon arrival from his friend who gets him in to see what's going to unfold in verse 17, the text says, Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples. He said, I am not. He outright denies his connection to Christ. Why? 
I believe, out of potential persecution. It comes off his tongue so easily, though. So naturally. It's the other reason I have a hard time believing that this disciple whom is unknown is John. Because wouldn't he have been asked the same question? Why didn't he have to be tempted like Peter in denying Christ? Regardless, Peter blatantly lies. This, my friends, is the foundation that has been laid and we will see will ultimately be the culmination of Peter's denial. It is the preliminary stage of his ability to deny his Savior. And ultimately, listen, if you're taking notes, the foundation of failure is the denial of truth. It's the denial of truth. Let us all be reminded that when we in that moment take the opportunity to profess a lie or to deny the truth, it will always make it easier to cover that lie or that denial of truth with another lie and another denial of truth. And that's rooted in pride because we don't want to be wrong. Of course, Peter was a disciple of Christ. I mean, he was just with him in the garden. Just a few moments ago. As a matter of fact, he stood up for Christ, cut the ear off of Malchus. What it tells me is this. It doesn't matter how close you are in your relationship to Christ. We need to daily remind ourselves, if Peter is able to deny the Lord, my friend, you and I are able to deny Him as well. The foundation of failures is that Peter denies truth. He lies. It certainly seems that Peter forfeits truth because of his fear of what might happen to him. And even though over the last few hours and the last few chapters which we've looked at, Jesus has told them, listen, tribulations will come your way. It's not a matter of if, but they will. You will have tribulation. As a matter of fact, when they kill you, they will think what they are doing is right. He even told Peter that he would deny Jesus before the rooster crowed. But in the moment of all that truth, all of that reality has become bliss to Peter in the face of possible persecution. My friend, don't ever become so prideful to think that you would stand bold before Christ. That you would be willing to give your life up for Jesus. That you would be willing to die on behalf of Christ. Listen, if you are not willing to sacrifice that which is temporal, you are certainly not willing to die for Christ. Listen, most Christians in our culture aren't even willing to come to church if it's not a seed. We laugh, but it's true, isn't it? I mean, how many times do people fail to come and be part of a good church that preaches the Bible well because they don't have a good children's program? But they would rather settle for a watered-down gospel, a pulpit of entertainment, so that their children can be entertained. 
We live in a day in which parents submit to their children and where they're going to attend church. This was fresh on my heart because I heard it yesterday. We go here because my children want to go there. No, 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 no. When you stand before God, you will give an account for where your children go. Your children want to give an account where you took them. We're living in a day when we have these high ideas of great spirituality, but in reality, we are unwilling to die to self, much less die for Christ. I mean, it's, it's hard enough to say no to a piece of cake. I mean, we laugh, but isn't that like we, we can't even say no to something we know is killing us? I'm willing to die for Jesus. I, I pray that I'm willing to die for Jesus. But if it left up to myself, I promise you, I will be just like Peter. We will be just like Peter. We shouldn't think so highly of ourselves to think that we could not do the very thing Peter does so quickly. Because if we are faced with the same dilemma as him, how many of us would absolutely do the same thing? I mean, we're not even willing to open our mouths and tell people about Jesus in public because we're embarrassed. Or we're scared that they might reject us. Or we're scared they might make fun of us. Let us not kid ourselves. We're very capable of doing this very thing. John continues in verse 18. Now the slave and the officer were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold, that they were warming themselves. And Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. Listen, he has made his way into the courtyard. He's trying to blend in unnoticed. But I want you to notice something. He has almost become like Judas. Standing with the enemy. Remember in the garden when the scripture said that Judas was standing with the enemy? Here, Peter standing at a fire with the enemy. Trying to blend in. You know what? As believers, we're not called to blend in. We are saints, not ain'ts. And we as saints are called to be set apart, to look different. And if our model as a Christian culture is to become like the culture, then we're just like Judas, we're just like Peter, standing with the enemy, looking in their face, trying to blend in. Isn't it a sad progression of sin? From all the foundation of failure, which is a denial of truth, that he is a disciple of Christ. It must have been night. They have lit the fire. It's cold. In that part of the world, when night falls, it gets chilly. The trial for which Jesus owned is certainly a sham. They had already predetermined that he must die back in chapter 11. So these are, re in reality, unlawful trials which Jesus is facing. 
Peter has denied and has shown that the foundation of failure is denial of truth. So we see the foundation of failure. But secondly, I want you to see the, the, the confrontation of corruption. Jesus is on trial. He is now within the courtyard of the high priest. He's given an account before Annas, the previous high priest, before he ever really makes it to the high priest. They are confronting him and there is a confrontation. And the high priest begins to question him. The text says in verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jewish come, Jews come together. I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. Behold, they know what I said. So the text tells us that they questioned Jesus first about what? The disciples. Notice he completely disregards the question. Why? Because the problem ain't got nothing to do with them. Listen, many times when people approach you with things that ain't got nothing to do with you, you just ignore it. That, that's the response. Just don't answer a fool in his folly. It had nothing to do with the disciples. It had all to do with Jesus. And so he focuses in on his teachings. Now what we can't see based on the context of what John gives us, I, that I believe Peter and whoever the other disciples is sitting there watching all of this unfold. And so Jesus answers this corruptive trial for which He is facing with truth, with boldness, with faith, without fear, which has taken place under the disguise of night, out of fear and rebellion, this process is the way in which they worked. There was no desire or attempt for which Jesus would meet these high priests to define and to get to the bottom line of things, to define if He was truly guilty or not. Listen, they simply wanted to kill Him. Many times this is the reality in which we as Christians face in our day. There isn't a desire to get to the truth. There's a desire to get to the crucifixion. We live in a day when truth isn't the issue, it's agenda. Now many of you have been mistreated, many of you have been lied against, many of you have been slandered for the purpose of not wanting to know the truth, but wanting to get rid of you and your testimony. And so they didn't bring up evidence against Jesus. Here they begin to question Him. Now I'm not a lawyer, but if I'm in court, I expect there to be evidence against me that I am wrong. They just begin to ask questions so that they could find something wrong. But we all know he's innocent. And so he says, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews come together. I've spoken nothing in secret. Jesus is simply saying, I have nothing to hide. I have nothing to disclose to you. That hasn't already been disclosed that I've said in private. Because that which has been done in private has been done in public. Private discourse further unpacks what he said publicly. And so he tells them 
those that have heard this message. But again, this message is not about truth. It's not about getting rid of the problem. They just want to kill Jesus. The problem is Jesus has done too many signs. He has too many followers. And they know He's the Son of God and they must exterminate Him based on their understanding and the position of authority. Don't ever be surprised when you speak up for truth. When you stand up for the Scriptures and the sufficiency of the Word of God. That you are called out. Don't ever be surprised when you call someone in their sin that they will not desire to kill you and to destroy your testimony because it's a whole lot easier to destroy the testimony of someone than it is to repent. So when you tell somebody of their sin, the first thing they'll do is they'll either repent or they will destroy you. This, they just want Jesus gone. And they think what they were doing is right. When in reality, they have bound the Son of God. They just want a confrontation of corruption. And so Jesus argues, I've said nothing in private, but I've spoken that in private, which I've also spoken in public. And when he concludes this, he asks them, why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I've spoke to them. But behold, they know what I said. And then verse 22, and when he said this, one of the officers standing nearby gives Jesus a slap, saying, is this the way you speak to a high priest? I can't help but think to myself, what a day it will be when that man, those men, stand before God. Because I have to ask the question, Is this any way to treat God in flesh? Listen, when you and I sin against God, it's as if we smack Him in the face. When we knowingly sin, when we knowingly live in rebellion, God is able to, listen, send legions of angels to destroy these men. And yet the silent Savior stands in the face of corruption boldly. Quiet. It's kind of contrary, isn't it, to how Peter responds to persecution. Jesus, on the other hand, stands bold in the face and trusting the will of God that it must come to fruition, no matter the cost. Peter is watching his example for how he should follow. We, like Peter, ought to listen and watch how Jesus responds to his enemy. Jesus answered him, if I've spoken wrongly, bear witness of the wrong. Prove me wrong. Where's your witnesses, gods? Oh, you don't have any witnesses. But if rightly, why do you strike me? They were wrong. Jesus is facing a confrontation of corruption. And when Jesus does not give them what they want and do what they want, the text says in verse 24, so Annas... Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. You see, we live in a day of corruption. We can learn a lot from Jesus' response. Because if he seemingly says, if I've spoke wrongly, bear witness of the wrong. And if you're going to accuse me, at least bring proof. Where's your witnesses? We can learn a lot from that, can't we? Listen, if there is no proof 
then don't give the enemy what they want. You stand bold in the truth. You focus on the truth. Don't, don't put fuel on the fire. If you don't put fuel on the fire, eventually it'll burn out. Jesus just lets it go. They've had enough. Eventually they'll send him off to Pilate. To Caiaphas, I mean. So we know that they have no proof of his wrong. They have no evidence of his wickedness. But they, like us in our day, they will all want to destroy you. They, they want to make false accusations without any proof, without any viable evidence. And here they wish to destroy Christ without any evidence. Because that which he said in private, he said in public, he's hidden nothing. Because Jesus has nothing to hide. And so Jesus says, if, if I have something to hide, why, why are you hitting me if I have nothing? But they only want a confrontation of corruption. So we see the foundation of failure, the confrontation of corruption. And then thirdly, I want you to see the culmination of denial. John is back and forth in his narrative. I believe is a contrast between Peter and Jesus. Peter has shown the foundation for failure by allowing a lie that, has, that he isn't a disciple of Christ fall on his lips, while Jesus in his confrontation of corruption has stood the test of boldness. He didn't wiggle his way away from the persecution and the consequence of truth. Rather, he stands firm. He doesn't lie. He doesn't back away to get out of trouble. Matter of fact, he knows what's coming. He remains steadfast. And then John goes back to Peter. It's dark. Christ is being confronted. Peter's there in the night warming by the fire. I believe he's watching it all unfold. John says, now Simon Peter was standing and warming. So they said to him, are you are not also one of his disciples, are you? And the text says he denied it and said again, I am not. The culmination of denial has begun to unfold. The old saying is, is when you tell one lie, you have to tell another lie to cover that lie. And it just keeps going on and on and on. And the habit of lying he has seen here. Peter becomes lying as his means of operation. He's standing in a place that I believe he ought not be. With the people he ought not be with in order to protect himself and his life, he feels it necessary to deny any connection to the one who's being persecuted right before his eyes. Now, while we don't see this in the book of John, if you flip over to Matthew chapter 26, we get a sneak peek into the account of what's happening in detail. We see the horrific treatment of Jesus before Caiaphas. They're trying to find any false testimony against him in which they would bear witness. They, they claimed in verse 66 that he deserves death. And then in verses 67 and 68 of Matthew 26, it says, Then they spat in his face, beat him with their fist, and the others slapped him. And mocked him and said, prophesy to us, O Christ. Who is it that hits you? Oh, they're having their fun. 
So the physical persecution was more than what John had revealed. But nevertheless, John wants to be clear that in the face of it all, Peter makes a choice to continually, habitually lie about his connection and his relationship with the Savior while he watches Jesus stand for truth. It was as if he had a second chance here, isn't it? Finally, he had a chance to stand up, for he had watched Christ stand boldly. But there was no willingness to repent. There was no willingness to deny the false accusation that had been previously made. Rather, he again confesses another sin of rejection. When it seems it could get no worse for Peter, the progression of sin becomes more real. It unfolds in the ability to lie built upon another lie, to build another, another lie comes to fruition. And John brings about a, a more dangerous reality into the circumstances for which he finds himself. Because now the question would come from one of the family member for whom he just cut the ear off of the guy. He wasn't just a disciple who followed Jesus. He was a disciple who had struck the ear and cut off of a family member. And John says here, verse 26, one of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of one whose ear Peter cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? And finally, Peter denied it again. And immediately the rooster crowed. All of a sudden, the culmination, the fulfillment of Peter's denial had come to fruition. Jesus' prediction had come true. Matthew reveals this final question from, of the slave of the high priest causes Peter to become angry. So much so that it says in 74 and 75 of Matthew 26 that when he was asked the question, then he became angry. He began to curse and swear, I don't know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. The rooster crowed and Peter and all of his fears and all of his failures became aware of his sin. And in verse 75 of Matthew 26, the text says, And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had spoken. Before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and cried bitterly. The Apostle Mark's account reveals that Peter begins to weep as well. All of a sudden, all of the accounts come to fruition. But one account that speaks louder than all is Luke's account. It's the one that is most penetrating to the heart of Peter. It's one that shows Peter's watching all that Christ is going through. All that Jesus is doing before his eyes. And when the final opportunity comes to take sides with Christ, 
He answers the slaves' questions. You, are you not one of these disciples? But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. And in verse 61 of Luke 22, and the text says, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. He looked at Peter in all of his denials. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord. How he had told him before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Oh, the pain that we bear. I pray that when we walk in sin, that the Word of God will penetrate our minds as if Jesus is looking at us, reminding us what He has said in His Word. Oh, the pain we bear when we walk in sin. Peter remembered he could bear it no more, and he leaves that place weeping bitterly, there are two ways to respond to sin, my friends. You can remain, suppress it, justify it, ignore it, act like you don't know. You can remain in that sin, or my friend, you can repent of that sin. We have, as believers, the Spirit of God who lives in us who convicts us of sin and righteousness and judgment. And when you, my friends, you walk in sin, my prayer is that the Spirit of God who resides in you will call you to repentance. I pray that the God who saved me, who lives in me, will do the same for me as He will do for you, that when I am tempted, that God will remind me of all that He has said and all that He has went through and all that He has done so that I might walk the victorious Christian life. So I wonder this morning, how many listening is living in progressive denial the truth of God's Word, of Christ. Listen, the, the progressive denial of Peter is undeniable. But the reality, his sin had come to light. His rejection of Christ is not his final destination. It's not his final approach to life. As a matter of fact, Peter would go on to be forgiven and to become a pillar in the faith and ultimately give his life for Christ. Judas, on the other hand, he didn't repent. He wept, but he didn't repent. It's not enough to cry. It's not enough to say, yeah, I'm a sinner. I broke the law. I did bad. It's another thing for that sin to affect you. And for you to feel bad. And for you to feel bad enough 
to repent of it and fall before the throne of grace and to be forgiven. Listen, the Bible says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that there is none righteous, no, not one. Don't be so prideful as to think you don't need to repent. No, daily we should repent and turn to God. If you come this morning, you've never trusted Jesus Christ, my friend. Today is the day of salvation. There is hope for you that you can be saved, that you can be redeemed, that you can be forgiven. There are stages of life for which you sin, but there should be repentance in your heart. When God makes your sin clear, we ought to be like Peter. Weep and repent so that God can use us for His glory. How about you today? Let's pray. This has been Getting in the Word with Pastor Stuart Guthrie. Thank you for listening to our weekly podcast. And be sure to visit us online at familybiblefellowship.org. And come see us in person on Sundays at 11 a.m.